We're in a series called Inside Out. We are looking at the Gospel of Luke, and we are following Jesus uh, in his journey. Yeah. Outside. Oh, upside in. That's the kind of thing I've had. Yeah. See, uh, see, you're doing your good work already. So just keep doing it because you got to pay close attention because I'm going to be off the rails today. Uh, I'm going to need you to keep me on track. So we're we're following Jesus. Uh, now he is uh, on a journey towards Jerusalem, and we're looking at all the things that he's teaching and doing to include outsiders in his kingdom. Uh, and he's challenging those who are on the inside uh, by calling out their hypocrisy and calling them to change and calling them to adopt his way of centering love, which they have not been doing. So we're looking at um, the forgotten and the marginalized. How Jesus makes them central to God's kingdom and the conversation about what it means to be uh, one of his followers. Today we come to maybe, I don't know, top five most um, recognizable stories, parables of Jesus. It's the one that we uh, often call the parable of the Good Samaritan. So it happens in Luke 10, uh, verses 25 to 37, if you want to follow along your Bibles, or you can read it on the screen. Verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, and so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he uh, put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Um, many of you know the story uh, that uh, I became a follower of Jesus during my college years. I was 21 years old. And uh, I'd grown up as part of a church, but it didn't really mean whole lot to me personally. I became a Christian in college 
um, I had a lot of friends who I had um, developed great friendships with, open, honest conversation with uh, throughout my college years because I didn't become a Christian until I was a junior. And I was talking with uh, one of these friends at one point, uh, and I was having a disagreement with him. He wasn't uh, a Christian, um, was, was pretty opposed to it, actually. And he knew that I had become one, and that I had gotten pretty serious about my faith in Jesus. So I, I don't think this friend of mine had many Christian friends, so he began asking me questions about um, why followers of Jesus do this, and why they don't do that, and why they believe this, and why they uh, prioritize that. And I remember one of the questions that he asked me, which uh, sound more like a statement than a question, but he said this to me, um, something along the lines of, Christians talk about love as being the most important thing, but it seems like they're far more concerned about heaven and how to get there. He said, in my experience, Christians don't give a rip about the real lives of people around them. How do you reconcile these things? And uh, I wish I could remember what my response was. This was like 20 years ago, so I, I, my mind can't play the tape back that far. Um, but rest assured, I answered my friend with all the certitude that a 21-year-old who'd been a believer for all of six months could muster. I'm sure it was glorious. Um, But I bring up this uh, experience because, uh, this conversation, because my friend's experience, which I've since found to be a rampant uh, experience of many who come into contact with Christians, is of of, um, believers and churches having one of two priorities. Um, experience is either uh, having a priority one that uh, a priority on personal piety. So becoming smarter and more well-behaved, working on your, your own self, personal holiness, sanctification, depending on what stream of the church uh, you come from. That tends to be the first. Or the second, which the second group tends to look down on the first as like holier than thou, but the second group tends to prioritize heaven or the afterlife or some might say this disembodied bliss and how to get people to that place. Uh, My friend saw a Christianity that prioritizes one of those two things and often from the outside looks as though it distracts its members from the needs of the very people that they claim to love. You might call it an opiate of the masses that causes our concern to be placed elsewhere, either internally or up there externally, but rarely around. And even though I did my best uh, that day to talk my friend out of his experience, I've come to see that he had a very good point. But today we proclaim that there is good news. 
that the God revealed in Jesus, the God that we've encountered in our story today, He loves us so much, too much in fact, to allow us to become disconnected from the very real needs of His creation. In fact, He is in the business of turning bystanders and spectators into mercy-dispensing, justice-dealing, emotion-honoring participants in love. People who have the freedom to choose material solidarity and co-suffering compassion. God is so committed to us, learning this way of His kingdom, He'll even use our enemies to teach us. So friends, open your eyes to the needs of those who are on your path and inherit eternal life. All right, this story, this passage, uh, I've already used the word pervasive and familiar, and it is both of those things. So much so that I thought about skipping it altogether, because what in the world can you say about this story that has not already been said? I feel a particular need to justify myself as a preacher by saying something new. And uh, I, I, I was bumping up against that, uh, that thing in me all week long. Um, so instead of trying to say everything that could be said about this, I want to focus on three things that I think can be said. So here's the first one. Um, notice in this story that Jesus is radically committed to drilling down beyond hypotheticals and theoreticals into what's real. In other words, his love traffics in reality. It contends with what's real. So, um, this Torah expert, um, an expert in what it means to be faithful to God, comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to internal life? To, to inherit eternal life. How do we hear that in 21st century America? How do I what? How do I get to heaven? How do I get to heaven? We immediately interpret it as a question of place rather than a, a question of posture. Um, but he, this is not the question that he's asking. He is a, an expert in God's law. He is a teacher who teaches other people how to be faithful to the God who has revealed himself through the scriptures. This God of love who desires goodness for his people, rescue and restoration. He wants to know, how, how, how do you boil it all down into a life that, that honors and, and lives in relationship with this God? He's talking about the here and now, not the someday somewhere. And so Jesus turns the question back on him, as any good rabbi does. I've been learning to do that recently. And he responds, uh, the, the, the expert responds with the great commandment, love God and love your neighbor. Now what does Jesus say in response to this? You're right! Now if you were Jesus at this point, this is the perfect opportunity to pull a Jesus juke on someone. Right? If it were about somewhere else and some other time and getting someone from here to there, this is your perfect opportunity to say, no, 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 it's not about that only. It's about what kind of atonement theory gets you to that place. 
It's about what you believe in your mind that will get you there. But Jesus doesn't juke him. Um, he doesn't uh, use it as an opportunity to say how good works aren't enough to get you to heaven. He doesn't prescribe a regiment of Bible reading and personal holiness. He affirms his answer that if you love, if you live a life of love, you will experience the very life of God because love is the essence of this life. Think about how simple and radical that is. Notice, too, that Jesus is so committed to this idea of love, not just being a concept, but a reality by which people live, that the very moment this expert goes into hypotheticals about who we're required to love and who we get to treat as an outsider, that Jesus goes into a story about how love and justice work to open our eyes to the fact that, that we would probably rather traffic in ideals than in reality. I love the way um, theologian, pastor Chris uh, Green puts it. He says, here's this kind of a playful way to think about the doctrine of sin. He says, we will do almost anything to distract ourselves from our neighbor's cries for help, won't we? Anything, including theology. Jesus tells a fictional tale, yeah. You could say it's a hypothetical, but make no mistake. There are women and men who are taken advantage of all along the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. He knows because he's been walking up it. And his concern is that those folks do not get passed by. I think one of the reasons that we traffic in ideals and theoreticals, that we distract ourselves even with the stuff of God, is because reality scares the heaven out of us. Yeah? You too? Okay, good. It's, just, it's not just me. But, I mean, think of it like reality is far messier and gray than just getting someone to pray a prayer. It is full of questions and uncertainty about whether or not we're being effective. To, to traffic in reality takes courage and curiosity. It takes dependency. It takes letting go of black and white sometimes. And so we would rather be justified that we've done enough to, to escape this reality rather than be forced to look at the brokenness that continues and endures because of the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. But friends, fear not today. Because the God revealed in Jesus, we proclaim today, is so full of love that he won't allow us to become disconnected from the real needs of his creation. He is in the business of turning us bystanders and spectators into mercy-dispensing, justice-dealing participants in love. Those with the freedom to choose material solidarity and co-suffering compassion with those who cry for help. God is so committed to this project that he'll use our enemies to teach us. So, open your eyes.
to those in need on your path and inherit eternal life. All right. First, God's love traffics in reality and what's real. Second, God's love is transferred in close proximity. It transfers. It, 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 it is spread through shared space. One might call that solidarity. Becoming one with those who suffer. So in our story, uh, this unnamed man is attacked. He's left for dead. And he's, he, this happens on the road from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Um, this road is so uh, known for violence that it, it had a nickname called the Way of Blood. Because it was notorious for things like theft and violence to occur along this 17-mile stretch. And it wound down through canyons, had narrow uh, cliffs and ravines. It was treacherous. In fact, I, I, there's a picture of it, a piece of it. It's not a super highway. It reminds, it reminds me more of like a path in Haiti. It's a footpath. Um, now think about our story for a second. How easy would it be if you found someone lying in, uh, let's say on the left-hand side, tucked into one of those little crevices? How easy would it be to avoid someone lying half dead? They're not like a quarter mile away, and you're like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. See, in order to avoid someone who's lying in the path, you might even be putting yourself in danger by walking along the edge. And yet the, the priest and the Levite, who are the insiders in the story, experts in Torah and supposedly understand better than anyone God's heart, they move away from the man in need. It's the experts in faithfulness who avoid the opportunity for justice and mercy. And then who shows up? A Samaritan. Now, I, I don't know what you know about uh, Samaritans and their relationship with Jews, but let's just say it's, it's not good. Like Hatfields and McCoy's not good. Um, the Samaritan people were a rival group who were sort of half Jewish, um, and I can't we just can't get into the full, like, you know, thousand-year history of the Samaritans. Um, but, but suffice it to say, they had their own ideas about what it meant to be faithful to God. In fact, they had uh, their own temple in a different city um, on Mount Gerizim. And they hated the Jews. Part of this hatred came from the fact that a hundred years earlier, a Jewish leader by the name of Jew Judas Maccabee, when he was leading a, a revolution in Israel, um, thought so poorly about Samaria and where they worshipped and what they did that he led a, an army into Samaria and leveled the temple that they worshipped at and sacked their town. And then later on in the story, um, the historian Josephus tells us that some Samaritans were so sick of the way that Jews were treating them that they snuck into the Jerusalem temple on Passover and desecrated it by throwing bones across the complex. 
I mean, this is bad blood. There's a reason in the previous chapter that when Jesus was coming through Samaria, the Samaritans said, no, thank you. We don't want your kingdom. And we don't want you as king. We know what Jewish kings do to us. So it's astonishing the fact that the very last time that we heard about Samaritans, they are rejecting Jesus, and Jesus uses the very person, people, who rejected him as the hero of a story about faithfulness to God. It's the Samaritan who has the wrong ethnicity and the wrong theology, who sees the man and is moved towards him and provides restoration at great personal cost. It's the guy who's the most wrong who Jesus says gets it the most right. The insiders in the story, they go out of their way to avoid and put themselves at peril by doing so. But the outsider, the marginalized outcast, sees the victim of violence, has compassion on him, and goes to him, shares space and solidarity with the victim. And and listen, it's... It's not, Jesus is not saying that all Samaritans are good and all Jewish people are bad. That's not his point. His point is, Jesus is so committed to all of his kids learning how to live in the kingdom that he'll even use our ethnic theological enemy to shake us from our apathy. This is like using Catholics or Mormons or or, um, Jehovah's Witnesses to teach evangelical Christians how to love like the bad people, at least the ones that we label that way. But Jesus is erasing the walls that we put up. He's he's destroying the boundaries that define who we can and cannot be neighbors with. He's calling us into solidarity with those who suffer harm in our world and to give ourselves to suffer alongside them. And notice, too, that that this living in Jesus' kingdom is something that we do with our entire selves, heart, soul, strength, not just our minds. We're used to loving Jesus, like loving God with our minds, like with what we think. It's the other stuff that I think we have a hard time with. But, But think about this. Jesus is telling this parable to a man of intelligence and reason, a man of sound doctrine and sound mind, And he holds up to this man an example of a heretic who lets his emotions get the better of him. It's crazy how far God will go to lead those that he loves to become from from disconnection to seeing and responding to the real needs of his creation. The good news that we proclaim is that this God that we know through Jesus is in the business of turning bystanders and spectators into mercy-dispensing, justice-dealing, emotion-honoring participants in love. God is so committed to us learning this way of his kingdom that he'll use our enemies to teach us. And so, friends, open your eyes today. Who's on your path? And might they be the way to inherit eternal life? Third, God takes, God's love takes uh, on the cost. 
there is a personal expense to love. Um, see, it's, it's not just that the priest and the Levite, the insiders in the story, lack compassion. They lacked compassion because they had something to lose by moving toward this person in need. Scholars have you know, theorized that uh, the priest is on his way back from his yearly duties at the temple. And so um, they made a very big deal about uh, purity laws. And so contact with blood or the dead, if this man is dead, would cause a person to become ritually unclean. So this, the process to purify yourself, it would be costly in time and money. Uh, and so a lot of rabbinic texts advise priests to stay at least six feet away from any potential dead body, just in case. Hashtag stop the spread. Um, I told you you're going to have to keep me on the rails here. But then we see the Samaritan who takes this cost, bears it, uh, bandages the wounds, uses his own oil and wine, puts the man on his own donkey, so now he must walk, brought him to an inn and took care of him, and then pays for the care. So he rescues the victim of violence by going to him and doing all these things, but then he continues to bear the cost of restoring the man from his wounds. I, I don't know about you, but oftentimes my experience of the kind of compassion or love that the Christian community musters is a sort of quick fix compassion. You know, like we show up at a school, we hand out a few things, and we hightail it out of there. And then we ride the emotional high from helping those in need. You might call this like a drive-by compassion. Easy in, easy out, fixes nothing. The Samaritan doesn't do this. He doesn't just bandage up the victim and go on his way never to return again. He uses his resources to rescue and restore. He makes a plan to return and assess the results of his care. This is radical. In other words, he is investing in the well-being of the wounded, not just what he did one day, that one time down from Jerusalem. This is the cost of love. Love calls us to investment, sometimes for the long term. And I, I, I don't know about you, but for me, like, this, this is where it gets scary because I like the easy fix. I've been trained, I've been discipled as an American that I can throw money at a problem one day a year, it'll probably fix it, but I can, I can purchase enough distance from that problem to never have to think about it or see it ever again. This is not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus overcomes boundaries, moves in close, and then invests in the wrong that's been done until, Lord willing, one day it becomes right. This investment, though, as scary as it might be, um, oftentimes creates 
a sense of solidarity and community, not just with the person who's been helped, but with others who gather around in sort of a community of care. So we see this happening a little bit between the Samaritan and the innkeeper. Now, because the Samaritan has included the innkeeper in the care of this person, they are bound together in some kind of way. There's community that's happened here between the two of them. I mean, I'm just, you know, speculating here, but I'm imagining in my, in my mind that the two of them somewhere down the road become friends. Maybe this inn becomes a way station for people who find trouble along this very road again and again and again and again. I've seen this kind of community bubble up from, from need. I mean, the, the example that I think of over and over again is the example of the food pantry. It started as a ministry to help people who have food insecurity. But the, the thing that I think about most every time I, I'm there is the community that's happened because of this shared meeting of a need together as one family, right? Deep relationships form over this kind of investment. See, you don't get that kind of uh, life eternal bubbling up if all we're concerned about is justifying ourselves through individual actions of goodwill. Jesus is not talking here about checking off a list of duties in order to make God pleased with us. He's not talking about self-justification. Jesus here is inviting us into eternal life. Saying that it's when we trust in the freedom to draw close and to bear the cost of love that we stumble onto the good life. It's when we choose material solidarity and co-suffering compassion that we become the kinds of neighbors that we wish others would be to us. And often, often, when we say yes to bearing that cost first, we never bear it alone. The good news that we proclaim today is that the God revealed in Jesus loves us too much to allow us to remain disconnected from the needs of his creation. He's in the business of turning bystanders and spectators into mercy-dispensing, justice-dealing participants in love. Those with the freedom to choose material solidarity and co-suffering compassion. God is so committed to us learning this way. He'll use our enemies to do it. So friends, open your eyes to the needs of those on your path. Eternal life be found there. Um, as we respond to this good news this morning, just want to pause and recognize that the Jesus who told this story to a bystander is here today doing for us what he was doing for the expert, turning spectators into participants. Not because he wants something out of us, but because he wants something for us. There's a big difference there. And so what are, the, what are the roads that you travel along? And are those roads more dangerous for some than others? 
Um, it feels like I travel along less <laughs> and less roads since COVID. But as I was reflecting on this myself, one of the roads that I know that I travel along quite often um, is the road of the, the so I'm going to call the white evangelical church in America. Because I can't speak for other groups. But I can speak for my own. Um, this is a road that I travel along a lot. And, and though this should be the safest road that there is on planet Earth, I've come to see, particularly over the last three to five years, that this road is more treacherous for some than others. There are many, many people that the church has failed who get left half dead on the side. I don't have to talk about all of them, but like women, often children, certainly those who've been abused, those who are uh, skeptical of power dynamics, who are suspicious of the Bible. Um, and I think for all of the church's talk about love, the church often provides a treacherous road for people like this. And so, I, like, <laughs> I was thinking about the, um, the expert in the law, like, I would rather talk about heaven and how to get there than talk about, like, systemic injustice. I really would. I did it, like, for a long time. And I can tell you, like, having preached both, it's, it's much easier. <laughs> it's much easier to talk about things in the abstract than in the particulars. It's much easier to talk about personal holiness than it is to talk about structural uh, systemic evil. Because the, those things are not easily solvable, right? They're, they're hard to get our arms around, hard to understand, particularly if we haven't had to look at them throughout our lifetimes. It's much easier, like the other road seems so much easier and simpler to me. But I continually, every time I come to a passage like this and I see Jesus interact with insiders like me, I always see him challenging their assumptions about the easy road and the hard road and which way it inherits eternal life. And so I keep feeling like Jesus is pressing and inviting me to speak to and speak on behalf of the de of the half-dead bodies that are along the road under the shadow of a steeple. But this is what love does. It, it asks the question, who was a neighbor? Who was a neighbor? And so for you, what, what roads do you travel along? And are those roads more dangerous for some? Who gets beaten and left on the side of the roads that you walk. And do people pass on the other side because it's too messy and costly to love on that road? 
The good news that we proclaim today is that the God revealed in Jesus, he loves you too much to allow you to remain disconnected from the needs of his creation. He's turning you today, this morning, from a bystander into a participant. He's teaching you the freedom of choosing material solidarity and co-suffering compassion. He's committed to this project in your life. He will finish what he started. And so, friends, open your eyes to the needs that are on your path because God has eternal life in store for you there. Let's pray.